Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. I want to read a quote from A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. Has anybody read that? The Knowledge of the Holy? A.W. Tozer. It's a real thin book. It's a great um, book on the attributes of God. And uh, he starts out The Knowledge of the Holy. I'm going to read uh, kind of a lengthy couple paragraphs here. And so bear with me and, and listen to what he says. He's been gone. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but um, there are four famous people that died on the same day. Um, A.W. Tozer is one of them, in case you're wondering. The other one is JFK and C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley. Four people all died on November 22nd, 63. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, telling, I'm telling you that, not to be morbid, but to say um, it's been a long time since this has been written, and if it was true then, it's true now. Okay, so listen to what he says. He says, um, this book is called Forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. A church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge, and her very awareness only makes her, her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly and uh, to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I'm God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Now we're beyond that, far beyond that. This loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. You know, I think of uh, when Jesus says to this, um, the Pharisees, you search heaven and earth to make one disciple, and when you find him, you make twice the devil that you are. So just the fact that people are coming into church doesn't mean that they're becoming true and sincere believers. He goes on, the only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and to make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. 
if we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. As my humble contribution to a better understanding of the majesty in the heavens, I offer this uh, reverent study of the attributes of God. Were Christians today reading such works as those of Augustine or Anselm, a book like this would not be uh, necessary. But such illuminated masters are known to modern Christians only by name. Publishers dutifully reprint their books, and in due time these appear on the shelves of our studies. But the whole trouble lies right there. They remain on our shelves. Um, let me Let me skip on here. I think I may even pass where I wanted to read. Okay, I did. All right, we're going to stop right there because I passed my marker. All right, I wanted to talk about the greatness of God. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday. Um, when we talk about God's goodness, we're talking about his attributes of love and how he, he cares for us. And when we talk about his greatness, we're talking about those qualities about him um, that are are great, well, obviously, because they're greatness, and they're powerful, and they're things in many cases that cannot be communicated. Like we understand that God can give us his moral qualities. You understand that God is holy and we can be holy too. Okay, God is loving and we can be loving too. But God being omniscient doesn't mean that we can be omniscient. You know, we're limited in that sphere. We're, he can give us a little bit, but we don't have the hardware to be able to handle all that he knows. And we can't be everywhere present, though we wish we could. And we can't... Um, be all-powerful, though we sometimes wish we could. How many have thought a time or two, if you could throw lightning bolts, you knew the person that you would throw them out? <laughs> so there, there, is, uh, there are those uh, aspects of God's nature which we can't, we can't partake in except that we benefit from them. You, you understand that we benefit from God being everywhere present. We benefit from him being all-knowing and, and all-powerful, but we can't have those things. We're dependent wholly on him for them and for the moral attributes that we can partake in. We, we depend upon him for those as well. And so I want to talk about God is great. And uh, this is a wisdom psalm that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 8. And a wisdom psalm means that the writer of the psalm is trying to teach us something, trying to teach us something. And I want you to ask the question. I'm not going to tell you what we need to learn um, through this. And uh, we'll ask that question at the very end, and I'll, I'll give some suggestions, but you may have some suggestions on it. And so be asking the question, what wisdom, practical, and wisdom is practical knowledge, right? Knowledge that we can put into practice. What practical wisdom is there in this psalm? Okay, so think about that as we, we look through this, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll come to the end, and we'll discuss that portion of it, the, the wisdom that we can gain from it. All right, now... My Bible with the big lettering got packed away and taken home, and so I'm stuck with this called what's called giant print, but still not big enough. So somebody want to read for us Psalm 8? All right, Denise, thank you. Go ahead and read the whole thing.
All right. Thank you. Is that that's through Psalm eight, right? All right. Thank you. All right, so let's talk about this idea of God's greatness here in verse 1. Um, notice what it says here. I can glance every once in a while at this little text and get something out of it. Lord, my God, I... Uh, nope, sorry, that's 7. See? See, I'm already having problems. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So here... Um, we're talking about something of God's greatness. We're going to focus on his majesty a little bit more, but that's an aspect of his greatness. But uh, great itself is an adjective. So when you, you say something is great, you're describing a person, place, or thing, right? So you're describing something as great in a particular way. And yet this adjective becomes a noun. So we, we talk not just about... Um, that God is great, but we talk about his greatness. There's substance to it, that he is great. And, and so it stops being a mere description, and it starts standing for certain qualities that are true in him. Okay, So you can think of some of the uh, qualities of his greatness, and different theologians break this up differently. They, they have a different uh, way of categorizing this, but um, you, would, you would talk about his spirituality, that God is not in a corporeal body. I don't know if you knew that or not, but and that may be troubling. We do have descriptions of the arm of the Lord and the finger of God and the eyes of the Lord, but we, we understand those, and classically we've understood those as what's called anthropomorphisms, pomorphisms, anthropomorphisms. Not only can my eyes not work, but my mouth isn't working. Um, and those are descriptions of God in terms that we can relate to. So other places in Scripture would make it a little more bizarre if we took those literally, like like the wings. He keeps us under the shelter of his wings. I don't think that God has wings. I think that's a description. It's a poetic description of how God relates to us. And you can see in the picture, like even Jesus saying that, how often I would have gathered you like a, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So there's a, there's a picture that's intended in that. And so... Um, when we talk about uh, his spirituality, we mean that God is is spiritual and that by being spiritual, he's not limited to one material location at a time. Now, in Christ, that changed. God came down and he, he dwelt among us and he was localized. Christ was. And uh, we understand Father still being spirit. I don't want to try to get into all of that. That's another discussion. But when we, when we talk about uh, his spirituality, we understand that he's... He's everywhere present, okay? So his, his omnipresence uh, works into that. Another aspect is his life, okay? And uh, some, I think, call this his aseity. And this means that God has life in himself. I am that I am. So I, I don't know if, you, if that really resonates with you, but maybe to th- think of it in contrast to us, we are derivative. We, we depend upon other things for life, our parents first, and going back down the chain all the way back to Adam and to God. Um, and then daily, not only is that true in terms of our our past and our history, but we still depend upon, we borrow life from other things like cows, if you eat a good steak, right? Or uh, the vegetation that's grown, all of that, we're borrowing life. 
in that way. And so we're taking the energy from that and nurturing our bodies so that we can be sustained. If we stop eating, we stop drinking, we cannot survive in and of ourselves. We're not self-sufficient in our, our ability to live. Are, are you with me? Okay, and God is. He doesn't require any of that. He doesn't, he does not fueled on our worship as if the fuel meter gets low because we are not worshiping and the universe is at risk of falling apart. God doesn't need those things. He's self-sustaining and um, he, is, uh, he is life in himself. Um, his immensity this has to do with every, being everywhere present as well. And, um, and there, there's some other qualities related to that, like his immutability. This is part of God's greatness is that he does not change. Like he, we change through time. God does not change. He's unchanging, thank God, because that means the promise that he made yesterday is still true to today. He's not, he's not whimsical. He's not uh, fickle. He's not that dad that you never know if you're going to catch them on the wrong day and it's going to be the bad mood or the good mood. Um, he's not like that. He's, he's consistent. And so we talk about his qualities of greatness. And when we we talk about his majesty, and this verse mentions majesty here in particular, and I think that's an aspect of, of greatness, but we talk about his majesty. Majesty is greatness being expressed in one particular area. And so we're going to be talking about majesty, but majesty is related to greatness, okay? So if you go like, man, Pastor pulled the old switcheroo. He, talk, he said we're going to talk about greatness, and then we talked about majesty. I'm narrowing the focus a little bit, okay? So related to this psalm. Majesty is where greatness meets wonder. And uh, the definition of majesty is greatness of appearance, dignity, or grandeur. And maybe a better word for grandeur is scale. Like when we talk about God, we're talking about someone who is so immense that he fills the universe. You, un- you understand? Like there, the psalmist describes it this way, where can I go from your presence? I can't get away from your presence. Jonah tried it, but his theology was busted because you can't you can't get away from God even in Tarshish, even if he made it there. Um, you can't get away from even in the depths where the <laughs> where the fish took him or whatever that thing was down in the deep. Wherever that took him, he couldn't get away from God. He cried out to the Lord from the depths, and God met him. So, uh, if you're running from God, good luck because you can't get away. He's he'll meet you everywhere. Okay, so we talk about his his greatness. We're talking about his greatness of appearance. This this would relate to beauty, his greatness of dignity and of scale. And this is hard because there's really there's really no analogy that brings us to a worthy comparison when it comes to God. Okay, so when we're talking about his his majesty, there are things that are in some way like his his greatness. But we have to only do that by analogy, by comparison, and we can't really fully get there. And what we have to do is we have to stop off where the the illustration stops off and realize that whatever greatness we've seen in those things, God is beyond that. Are you are you with me with that? Like there's there can't be an exact analogy because nothing is like God in an exact form. You understand? So we don't see. We don't see all that he is by these analogies, but Scripture still uses them. And poets have, have done the best that they could by comparing God to, one, one example of this in terms of majesty is to the mountain, okay? So we know all about mountains. And when I was a kid, I loved mountains. I grew up in the plains. And geez, if you can look at this floor 
right here, that's about as flat as the country that I grew up in. Okay? It looked like that. And so anytime we got to go, we had family that lived in Colorado. Anytime we got to go there, loved that because look at the mountains. We never see mountains. They have hills, but not mountains. And even the mountains they have in Kansas, I think there might be one is disappointing in comparison with what we have here. But we can understand the grandeur of seeing the mountain. And so sometimes God is, there's a comparison that's made. And I don't, I don't know if you've, anybody heard the, the name if you haven't? Raise your hand if you haven't. No, don't raise your hand at all. El Shaddai. Anybody heard the name El Shaddai before? Okay, El Shaddai. And uh, do you know that they don't exactly know where what the root of that is? And so in Hebrew, they're always trying to find what is the root meaning of, of this. And um, one popular understanding of this is that El Shaddai means God the mountain. God the mountain. And so by being the mountain, there's another scripture that kind of relates to this. Everything that's needed in terms of safety and provision is found in him. Okay, That he is, he's enough. And so these these pictures tend to carry a lot of significance in, in practical ways. And so God, the mountain, El Shaddai. Uh, it's not saying that God is a literal mountain. You understand that. Just as when we say God is love, that's not exactly the same as saying love is God. Okay. Right? Those are that's different. So we're saying something about Him. We're we're sharing a quality about Him, and and this shows something of what He's like. It's saying the qualities which make mountains great are like in some way God's greatness. I thought of a few. Maybe you can add to this, but I thought mountains. I think I think mountains are massive. Is that fair? Mountains are massive, and um, they're imposing. And I don't see massive and imposing as the same thing. Imposing means that mountains, like they are where they are, and you either go around it. The mountain's not moving. You've got to deal with the mountain. You understand? That's imposing. And so mountains are that way. Um, Check this one out. Mountains are insurmountable in some cases. You can't get past them. Okay, and, and I know that in modern days we, we do a lot more with flight and all of that and mountaineering and all of that. But in some ways, you can't get around. Immovable. And think of the modern mind. We're, we're dealing, uh, excuse me, the ancient mind. In the modern mind, now we use dynamite and we blow mountains apart. And so the analogy in some ways can be weakened for us. But if you think about it as the ancients thought about it, if a mountain's there, it's there. You're not moving it. Okay? It can be a, a place of shelter and protection for you, but it's there. It's immovable. And because it's immovable, it's constant. There's a reference point. And, and we kind of do this, don't we? When I'm driving and I'm looking at the mountains, I always look for like O'Malley Peak and I look for Flat Top. Those are my two points of reference. And everything else in there is, is kind of nebulous in my mind. But there's there's something of a constant about this. And one of the things that we heard when we first moved up here that was helpful is that the near mountains are always east. If you need to get your bearings, because you can't get your bearings from the sun in Kansas, rises on the rises in the east and sets on the west. In Alaska, it doesn't do that, does it? <laughs> Like, if it's winter, it rises in the south and sets in the south. And if it's summer, it rises in the north and sets in the north. So, such a weird, different thing. But um, 
there's something constant about the fact that there are mountains there. And they change how they look, but the color has changed, but the mountains haven't, right? Okay, so there's constant. Um, another thing that a mountain will do is a mountain, because it's majestic, it's humbling to us. Now, understand what I mean. I don't mean that you feel like less of yourself when you look at a mountain. But what it does is it brings you down to size, and you recognize scale, like you are great and I am small. And you think about how that can be humbling to us in a way where we humble is not to feel bad about ourselves, but it's to see ourselves in proper proportion to reality. And the most important thing we need to be in proportion to is God. Recognize that He is great. Like God is our friend, but He's not our equal. Right? So He loves us, but if we ever imagine ourselves on the same plane with Him, we're in trouble. And a lot of people have not only done that, but they've, they've subjugated God in, in their thinking to where he's lesser than them. And that's, that's really, that's irreverent to say the least and dangerous and downright um, treasonous in God's world. Okay? And then a mountain can be reassuring. Okay? Think of this. Um, the worshipers coming into Jerusalem, and they look up and they see the mountain, the hill of the Lord. Okay, that's reassuring. God's throne in the days of the Old Testament is there. That's the epicenter of Israel's worship. And they can look up, and there's confidence and surety in that. And then constantly in the Old Testament, you're seeing the mountain be a place that's a place of fortitude. In the ancient world, almost always, they built their their Acropolis, that's the the castle of the city on top of the highest point. Today you can go to Athens and you can see the Acropolis, which has the Parthenon on it. And there's other uh, Corinth. They still have the ancient fortress up there. There's something about the mountain that can be reassuring to us. Okay, For one thing, it's always there, right? So that's reassuring. Like Remember Psalm 46, God is my refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear, though the earth be removed, and God forbid the mountain should be carried in the midst of the sea. So those are some things about mountain that I think are analogous to what we get from God. Now, a lot more, because, I mean, this is very surface level, but if we take it to a new level, we understand all of those things are true of God, but in a supreme degree. So this is an ancient picture of something which is majestic. What, what is majestic specifically? Let's look at verse 1 here, and let's ask the question. I want us to just think about this for a moment. What is it that's majestic? Lord, my God, I, I'm back in 7 again. Look at, verse, look at chapter 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is it that's majestic? Let's think about that for a moment. What, what's, the, what's the genre that we're reading from right now? Psalms, poetry, okay. And you expect in poetry to find a lot more symbolism and figures of speech, okay. So I'm going to suggest that it's not just talking about the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord often in Scripture, and I think especially in the Psalms, is symbolic of all that God is, okay? So when you say the name of the Lord, um, we're, not, we're not just saying a magic formula. We're not just uh, saying, Lord, your name's majestic, but not the rest of you. Mm-mm. This is, 
This is uh, what's called in figures of speech synecdoche. Have you heard of that? This is a part represents the whole. Okay, so if you bought a new car and you said, Pastor, come see my wheels. You're not asking me to come just look at your tires and your rims. You'll me see the whole deal. Okay? It's the part representing the whole. Right? And that, that happens in a lot of different areas. It happens frequently in the Bible. In one uh, case, when you hear of the southern kingdom, you'll often hear in the Old Testament, Judah. Well, it's not just Judah. It's also, it's also uh, Benjamin and parts of Simeon are down there. Okay, so, but it's called Judah because it's known by a part representing the whole. And the northern kingdom, anybody remember what they're called? Israel. And there's another name, Ephraim. Did you know that? Ephraim is the largest tribe in the north. And so all of Israel got called under the title of Ephraim. Now, there's still the tribe of Ephraim. There's still the person Ephraim. But when it refers to it, especially in the latter half of the Old Testament, somewhere around well, prior to the Second Temple period, um, you're going to see you're going to see there a lot of times Ezekiel, especially, calling the Northern Kingdom Ephraim, but he means the whole North. Okay, so there again. So when we're talking, bringing it back to this, when we're talking about majestic is your name, we're really saying that God is majestic. His name stands for His reputation and all that He is. You are majestic, Lord, in all the earth, not just your name. All of you is majestic, okay? So that's important to keep in mind. And when we call upon the name of Jesus in prayer, that's not a magic formula either. What that's intended to do is saying, based upon your character, respond in character to this prayer. In the name of Jesus, we're praying, because of who you are and what you've done, I can pray this prayer with confidence in you, okay? So that that's maybe will help. So what is it specifically that's referred to here? I think he's referring to God being majestic, not just not just his name, though his name is majestic too. Okay. Um, look at verse 2 here. It says, Lord, uh, man, I'm back in verse 7. I need to put something over that. Chapter 7. All right, there we go. Chapter 8, look at verse 2 here. It says, well, you have set glory... Uh, set your glory in the heavens, by which he means, just in case I forget to catch up to this again, uh, by which he means that you have put on display your majesty in the things you've created in the heavenlies. Okay, So he's saying that. And then notice, uh, through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Okay, This seems strange to me as I was reading through this, like, we're talking about the majesty of God, and all of a sudden we have this strange comment. It's strange to me. Maybe it clicked perfectly for you, but strange to me in the context. They would bring up kids perfecting praise. What's that about? So I, I was asking that question. I was thinking about this in, in context and looking at the commentaries, and it seems to me um, that this verse is referring to the continuation of praise by a new generation. Okay? Follow me with this, and if you have a disagreement, and I want to put a caveat here that we have many godly people who are older here, and that's wonderful, and, and God loves that, and there's great influence and, and importance that comes with that. But listen, as we think about this, children have this natural wonder about them, don't they? 
Like they, it doesn't take much to like captive. You can play with a balloon for twenty minutes or thirty minutes if you're a kid, or a box, cardboard box. What amazes me is you can have a whole bunch of new presents, and they want to play with the box. I did when I was a kid. So there's wonder there, a natural wonder, and their ability to awe at the majestic. And I think that's an antidote against the weary old cynics who have seared their sense of wonder and their worship. See, it's one of the reasons that God limited lifespans. Did you know that? In Genesis chapter 6 and, and following, when they came through, he looked down upon mankind and saw how wicked they were. And then at the end of the flood period, he said, I'm going to limit life again. He cuts the years down. Anybody remember that in your reading? I think somewhere probably around Genesis 8 or 9, it says something like that. And... Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but one of the reasons is because there was this growing wickedness because of the influence of wicked elders. And so God limits lifespans and says, I'm not going to let people live as long as they used to. And uh, I think it's also one of the reasons that he set a limit on the influence of a generation to the third and the fourth generation. New worshipers could be born and the old rebels could die off. Okay? And that that helps at least to renew the earth in some ways. Now, that's not a guarantee that the next generation will raise up and follow God, but there's a fresh start, okay? And so I think that has something to do with this here. Like, there can be a, t- a tendency in life to get kind of jaded and used to the, the majesty where it doesn't affect us in the same way anymore because it's old hat. Not because it's God's old hat, but because our perspective is somehow shriveled. Are you with me? That can happen. Like you've, we've seen it. Like uh, I've seen the Grand Canyon before. <laughs> it's, no, it's no wonder to me anymore. Not, I've not seen it, but I'm saying that as an old cynic. And maybe there's been things that we've seen over and over again, and they just kind of grow old and tired to us. Or even with the move of God, we can see God moving a powerful way, and he's touching and changing lives, and we've seen it so many times that it doesn't move us in our heart anymore. You see where I'm going with this? But there's a freshness of wonder. There's an exuberance for the young, and I think that has something to do with why this verse is placed here. Okay, so notice the next thing that happens in verse 3. Um, verse 3, when I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings or the son of man, that you should care for them? Okay. Now this verse, verse 3 here. But I'd like you to notice now a comparison is being made. First the comparison um, with God's majesty. But here he does this comparison by acknowledging other things that are great. Okay, what are the other things that are great mentioned in verse verse 3? What's what is it? The heavens and the moon and the stars. Okay, anybody would think those are great. Not not just really good like the superlative degree of good, but they would think okay, there's something wondrous about that. If only they knew. I wonder in the ancient world, I I think that there's some evidence out there that they still saw those things as big. But I wonder if they really knew how what we know, how big 
some of those sons dwarf our son, okay? And uh, if they knew, like, how many times, I, I can't remember how many times the earth fits, somebody could Google this, but how many times the earth would fit inside Jupiter? I think I heard somewhere around 400 times. That's crazy, okay? We're talking about big things that are out there, the stars, the moon. It's, the moon's not that big by comparison with those other things, but it's big in comparison to us. And so the psalmist here is looking up at the wonders and saying, okay, um, God, it, these are great, and God created them. Okay, here's how the logic of this unfolds. Heaven, moon, stars, everyone considers great. Like, wouldn't you consider them great? They're bigger than us. Okay, and then the second premise of that would be God created all of them. They're great. God created them. Therefore, God is greater than them. Do you see the logic that's flowing from this? That God is greater than all of these things. How majestic is your name? Not only in all the earth, but throughout all of created universe. Okay, so there's something that happens now in verse 4 that shows that all of a sudden the worshiper, seeing the grandeur and the majesty of God, realizes something about themselves. And this is, this is good. This is a good thing. Verse 4, it says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. And then here's verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them and human beings that you care for them? What are they that you care for them? So now by contrast, look how small we are. Okay, They're big. God's bigger. How small are we? And then the related thing is how insignificant am I? I have, this, I have this feeling occasionally, and it's good to have this feeling, but sometimes when I go visit uh, different cities where there's a huge population, and I think about in terms of how many people live here, how small am I? I'm just a single person out here. And there's this great moving, and there's important people, and the city, big cities are even bigger than the important people that are within them. Like, no one can... No one can be the man of New York City. You know what I'm saying? And so we all kind of get shrunk down in size when we come around things of grandeur. And here, that, that's the thing that's happening is that we suddenly become aware of our own size. And this happens when we're next to something really, really tall or really, really large. We can become aware of how small, how small we are. And this is a good thing. It, it, it brings life into perspective by the only true measure of significance, and that's God himself. And we all fall short of him in both greatness and goodness, don't we? So when we compare ourselves in any way or contrast ourselves with him, we fall short of what he's like. But notice the thing that changes all of this in verse 4, that God is mindful of us. And I'll talk more about the the Son of Man thing in just a moment, but God is mindful of us. He chooses us. He crowns us. Verse 5, I think it is, it says, uh, what is man that you're mindful? You have made him a little lower than the angels. That may have Elohim here, but they understand that to mean angels. 
in the NIV at least. Anybody, we heard God some moment ago. Anybody else have anything different? Heavenly beings, okay. Anybody have KJV? ESV, is that what, heavenly beings? Okay. So you've made them a little lower than the heavenly beings, whatever, whatever that is. We've got angels in the NIV here. And yet you crown them with glory and honor. So he chooses us and he crowns us with glory and honor. He chooses us and that gives us dignity. We have vocation. And while we may be small by comparison, our significance doesn't have to do with size. Okay? In comparison with God, it's, it's choice that makes us significant. And that's really important to, I think, understanding the wisdom of this psalm is that, that size does, is not the measure of significance. And as we look through this, we think about those different things. We're small in comparison, but our significance comes from Him, uh, our relationship to Him. See, the size of a thing is not its worth. Otherwise, an elephant would be more important than a person. Okay. And some might argue that because they're bigger or whales are more important than people. And sometimes people think that their dog is more important than people. Um, and I, I would just ask you to consider this for a moment. Is an elephant more important than a man? What about Jupiter more important than Earth? Or let's just bring it down to a practical level. Is a man who's six foot tall slightly more important than a man who's five foot eight? Dean says yes. I'm questioning his orthodoxy back there. We See, now that makes it ridiculous because we're realizing, all right, when we think about it in terms of that, then it's that can't be true. And so it's not that. He, compa- he compares uh, to angels here, but this is a, a lesser in majesty. When he said he's made us a little lower than the angels, I understand that to mean that humans are lesser in majesty, okay, follow me on this, but more significant, it seems to me, from other scriptures, in love, okay? And there's some verses that refer to things like the angels longing to look into our redemption, but they can't because they observe it. They long to look in and understand it, but they can't because they're outsiders to the redemption story. Think of that. I mean, their angels rebelled. There's no redemption plan for them. But there was for us. And not only have we made one mistake, but several. And God still seeks us out for relationship. I think that says something about where he holds us in his heart. Our dignity doesn't come from our own majesty, but by bestowed significance from him. That's important. We'll think, we'll think about that because what happens when we pull the plug on that and we, we fall into the secular trap of there is no God, we all determine our own significance and worth and our own meaning, where does it all go? And uh, the atheistic philosophers, they can't find any reason for real significance for people or real meaning to life because they pulled the plug on the one thing that can provide it. They haven't, but they've done it in their minds. You you understand what I mean? God's still there. God hasn't died. Um, you didn't come to church to hear that because you already knew that. He did. Christ did die on the cross. I'm going to keep going. You know what I'm talking about. So uh, he compares to angels, but lesser in majesty, but greater in love, as some 
uh, verses suggest. Okay, And then he compares man. Notice as we go on down here, he made them a little lower than the angels and, can, and uh, crowned them with glory and honor. Okay, So notice this. You made them rulers over. Now the comparison is not with what's higher but with what's lower. Notice this, verse 6. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. That's dignity. You have put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea and all that swims the paths of the sea. Okay, so now the comparison is made with what's lower. I, I don't take this to mean that at your word you can command birds to fly a different direction and not poop on your car and all of that. But I do take this to mean that in terms of our stewardship, we have a responsibility over all of this and that Jesus himself said it, that you're more important than the birds. Okay, So it, it, this, this talks about a place, a place where God draws us up into his grandeur and gives us significance, not based on our own majesty like his. He's got majesty. But what he, he does, he crowns us with glory and honor. He puts us in a place of leadership. And I think that's uh, really significant because if you pull the plug on um, who God is, then we also lose our place within the created order and we become subservient to this world rather than stewards of it. Right? And there's a lot of people that are doing that. They've become um, subservient to the world rather than taking up their rightful place. Okay, so <clears throat> he says here that you have, un, you have uh, stewardship over all of these things, flocks and herds and animals and birds of the sky and fish of the sea. And then, Lord, how majestic is your name. So I want to go back here to um, Son of Man because I think Hebrews quotes this. There may be another place where it quotes from Psalm 8, verse 4, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? And human beings, which I think this might be in the plural, but um, the literal there would be sons of, sons of men or sons of man that you, um, sons of man that you care for them. Okay, and so this verse, I think, is applied to Jesus in the New Testament. And here's, here's how I think that's important. He's the only one that, fills all these categories perfectly. He is the perfect steward of humanity. Okay? We couldn't do it. We didn't do it. And our figurehead in Adam led us astray. And Romans says that there was an old federal head or figurehead for humanity, and now there's a new one, Jesus, the second Adam. And he came and he did what the first Adam didn't do. God in flesh came and did what the first Adam, he kept the law perfectly. He was in right relationship with God. He had command, didn't he, over the elements, okay? Because he was in this perfect relationship with the Father. And so he fulfills the calling completely, and then he invites us into it as the new humanity. So that's important to keep in mind that when it says this, there's the stewardship bestowed that Christ comes and he fulfills that call. He not only does it for all of humanity, he does that for Israel as well. All right, so we've come to the conclusion. I want to ask you the question, what wisdom should we learn from this psalm? We've been thinking about it. We've been thinking just to review 
the majesty of God. Okay, he is majestic. Okay. Um, there's ordained praise from those who keep a childlike heart before God. Can we just say that? And then um, we recognize our own worth in comparison, and then he gives to us responsibility to steward. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.